Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I don't know about you, I've been enjoying my morning commute down I-91 because it's noticeably lighter in the summer, but that'll change come September. I know I have it easy. I'm not an extreme commuter. Are you? The term refers to someone who drives two hours or more to get to work. Coming up, we'll talk with the New York Times reporter who says the number of people who extreme commute is expected to grow. We'll find out why. But first, if state residents need to go to court for a civil matter, how difficult is it to find and afford an attorney? Today, where we live, we look at a variety of legal services to help residents. What has been your experience with lawyers when you've needed counsel in civil matters? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In studio with me now is Timothy Fisher, Dean of the Yukon School of Law. Timothy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Also on the phone with us is John Pollock, coordinator of the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel, also an attorney at the Public Justice Center. John, welcome to where we live. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I want to start off with the in-studio guest, uh, Timothy Fisher-Gann from UConn uh, School of Law, the dean there. Let's talk about uh, the justice gap, this idea of access uh, to counsel. Uh, we know that it's a right afforded to people when they're in uh, criminal uh, cases, but what about civil? Right. It's one of the ironies of the United States today that we are a country founded on law, and yet injustice happens every day, and it happens when people need a voice and somebody who understands the law to speak on their behalf but can't afford one. And what a frustration for us that one's ability to be treated justly depends on whether you have the financial resources to afford a lawyer. Now, why has it been set up this way? Well, um, part of it has to do with just the founding creed of our country. We're not a country founded on a religion or on a clan leadership. We're founded on two concepts of law, that we are created equal and endowed with inalienable rights. Well, those are legal concepts. And so we organize ourselves as a country according to law. And yet that means we need lawyers. But lawyers can be expensive if they're not provided automatically by society. Now, I'll go back to John. I mentioned you're with the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel. Tell us about the organization. So our organization basically works to establish a right to counsel in civil cases that that involve basic human needs. So these are things like when someone is going to lose their home or their children or their life-sustaining medical benefits or are facing domestic violence. The belief is that, and our philosophy is that, those matters are so important that we should guarantee counsel. They shouldn't be left to the marketplace to be able to find a lawyer, but they should be provided one just as they are provided in criminal cases. Now, when, we're, when we look to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, why hasn't there been enough to safeguard those involved in civil cases? Well, the, the interesting thing about the Supreme Court is it's taken a very uh, strict view of a separation between a criminal case and a civil case. Yet, if you were to ask the average person, they wouldn't be able to tell you often what is a criminal or a civil case. All they look at is what they stand to lose. And it may surprise people in this country to find out that they can even be incarcerated in a civil matter and not necessarily have the right to counsel. It may depend on what state they're in. 
I mentioned the Supreme Court. I'll go back to uh, Timothy Fisher in studio with us. There's a case, Gideon versus Wainwright. Tell us about that in the 60s. Sure. That was a seminal case by the United States Supreme Court in 1963 that recognized that when a person is brought to trial for a crime, they can easily be convicted when, in fact, they're innocent if there's not somebody there to speak on their behalf who knows the law and is able to collect the facts and present them appropriately. And the Supreme Court had recognized that in limited cases before 1963, but then took that important step. And the difference has been huge for the country. We still have injustice, but nowhere near at the scale that we would if people didn't have lawyers. When we talk about this issue, um, Timothy, when we look at the state of Connecticut, how big of a problem is it where you have people that have to go, uh, they have a civil case for a variety of reasons, housing, child support, um, other issues? Um, what happens to them when they can't afford an attorney? Yeah, well, the legislature last year adopted a, a law establishing a task force on access to legal counsel in civil matters that was prompted in part by the terrible example in 2015 of the Moreno baby who was dropped off the Aragoni Bridge and died. And when we looked back at what happened in that case, that was a case where that child's mother had all the right to get a restraining order against the child's father, but because she wasn't a lawyer, because she couldn't afford a lawyer, she wasn't able to explain it adequately to the judge. And that's an example of the terrible things that can happen without civil counsel. Uh, I understand, uh, John, that this movement to guarantee representation in civil matters um, is something called uh, Civil Gideon or the Civil Right to Counsel. Can you talk more about uh, that movement? Absolutely. We, we prefer the, t- the term Civil uh, Right to Counsel in part because the right to counsel that we seek to establish is not quite as broad as what Gideon established for criminal cases. We're not seeking a right to counsel for every kind of civil case you could possibly imagine but rather basic human needs. These are the kinds of things that everyone would agree are so fundamental to our our human existence that people should not be deprived of them without counsel to protect their rights. And again, these are things like when people stand to lose their children or their home, or even their physical liberty if they're going to be incarcerated for, for example, failure to pay a fine or a fee. And the movement has really grown over the last decade. We In the last couple of years, we've seen over 60 bills filed across the country to expand on the right to counsel in various kinds of civil cases. We've seen a huge uptick in litigation. The states have actually been quite protective of the right to counsel under their state constitutions, where they're at liberty to provide more rights than the U.S. Supreme Court has said exists under the federal constitution. Now, Timothy, you mentioned uh, the the task force that you co-chaired. Tell us about some of uh, the issues. He mentioned the states being proactive, coming together with these bills about movement here in Connecticut. Certainly. So that task force charged us with identifying the essential human needs that require protection. And so just as, as John said, uh, where someone's life can get ruined by an unjust criminal conviction, someone's life can get ruined by becoming homeless, by losing your children by domestic violence. And so the legislature asked us to identify those and make recommendations about what to do about it. I was asked to co-chair along with former Connecticut Bar Association President Bill Clendenin. And we worked hard through the fall of 2016 and delivered our, our report to the state legislature. And what we asked them to do was establish a right to counsel in certain limited cases of essential human needs. And they are similar to those that John has identified. Uh, threats of domestic violence, loss of child custody, including in deportation situations, eviction heading towards homelessness, and uh, certain consumer debt collection cases. And in fact, the legislature is looking at that, and there's a bill pending that may take first steps.
And what about costs associated with this? Because that's always something that legislators bring up. Um, how do you address that and the point that this is actually a good investment for states? Yeah, so there are very cost-effective ways to provide lawyers to people in, in these um, particular areas. And, and we know that because we already have a long track record in Connecticut of providing counsel in certain civil cases, including some child protective custody type cases. And in those situations, the state has a network of giving out these cases on a limited basis to private counsel on a very low cost basis. So we know it can be done. And indeed, as you point out, the return on investment for the taxpayers is huge because when you think about how much the state loses when a family becomes homeless or when children go into state care, when people lose their jobs and are no longer paying taxes, let alone the cost in terms of public health, criminal justice, and the like, the return on investment for the taxpayers is huge in protecting these families and keeping them together. We're in a budget crisis here in Connecticut, a long-standing one. There's still no budget. How does that play into um, you know, having these kinds of resources to help people in civil matters that need representation? Sure. Well, obviously, this is a tough time for anybody who needs to do something that costs money in the state of Connecticut. The, uh, the proposal right now in front of the legislature would create a pilot program that would be just focused on the domestic violence cases of restraining orders and would carve out uh, two situations where both the petitioner and the respondent could get private counsel on a low-cost basis. And the hope is that as part of a budgetary adoption that some portion of, of state money otherwise recovered not from taxpayers but by attorney general recoveries could be carved out for this. But like everything else that has to do with money, it's waiting in the balance. This is this is where we live today. We're talking about the right to counsel in civil matters. It's a, it's a right afforded to criminal cases, but when you're uh, in cr- uh, civil court and you don't have enough money uh, for an attorney, uh, what does that mean for people in that situation? Today we're talking about it with Timothy Fisher, Dean of the Yukon School of Law, and John Pollock, coordinator of the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel, also an attorney at the Public Justice Center. Have you found yourself in that kind of situation, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. John, I wanted you to weigh in on a question I asked Timothy earlier about um, this being a wise investment for states. Absolutely. And we we like to think of legal services and the right to counsel as preventative medicine. And it's interesting that the Affordable Care Act basically guarantees people the right to basically receive preventative treatment without having to pay because we all understand that it's much cheaper to pay for treating <clears throat> issues before they become serious medical problems. And we have to think about legal services and the right to counsel the same way. When you have someone who faces an eviction without counsel and is wrongfully evicted, that person may very well become homeless. That person who becomes homeless may become arrested. They may wind up in an emergency room. There are other consequences, all of which have serious taxpayer consequences attached to them. We pay much more for those secondary consequences than we would ever pay to provide a lawyer at the outset of that eviction case. And how does the U.S. stack up against other countries when we're talking about this, uh, this so-called justice gap, John? Well, it's, it's actually quite shocking, and I think, I think your listeners would really be surprised to learn that the World Justice Project, which ranks all the countries uh, on, on various aspects of justice, found that the U.S. was 94th out of 113 countries on access to civil justice. And you may ask, well, why is the United States doing so poorly? And one reason is that many of our compatriots, the the countries in Europe that we would consider to be the countries most similar to us, they all have a right to counsel in civil cases. We lag behind them. 
Uh, that is interesting. Uh, Timothy, do you want to add to that, this idea that we're lagging behind other countries in terms of justice? Yeah, it's troubling to us. And, and now putting on my hat as a dean of a law school, I feel as though you know our school and other law schools, we are producing the answers. We are graduating new lawyers who are able to take up and run with this challenge. Uh, and indeed, one of the enormous frustrations of this country right now is that there are uh, relatively new lawyers having trouble finding a job, and yet there are so many people in America who are looking for lawyers and can't afford one. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today, we're talking about legal services to help Connecticut residents who may be having trouble finding representation in civil matters. In studio with me today, Timothy Fisher, Dean of the Yukon School of Law. On the phone, John Pollock, coordinator of the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel and an attorney at the Public Justice Center. Coming up, we're going to find out more about these programs that exist, including new incubators that help the underserved while jumpstarting the careers of new attorneys. That's after the break, and you can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the justice gap in civil cases where there's no right to counsel. What does that mean for people who can't afford an attorney? Does this apply to you? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In studio with me, Timothy Fisher, Dean of the Yukon School of Law. On the phone, John Pollock, coordinator of the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel, also an attorney at the Public Justice Center. Now, what programs exist? this to help Connecticut residents. I'm sure you've heard of legal aid. There's also incubators. We're going to learn more about them in just a little bit. But first, I wanted to, to get the story from a woman calling in right now. Her name is Barbara, and she got help through a nonprofit, Connecticut Legal Services. I believe it's based in Middletown. Barbara, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, and I understand for safety reasons, you don't want to use uh, your full name, uh, but you were involved in a domestic violence situation. How did you get connected to Connecticut Legal Services? Well, I was in an abusive marriage, and I was seeing an advocate at Susan B. Anthony. My advocate referred me to Connecticut Legal Services. And had you ever heard of uh, this nonprofit before, or did you ever think that you would be uh, wanting to reach out because you were in a situation? I never realized that this service existed. I never even thought I'd qualify for such a service. Um, I had no idea that this was um, available to us. You said you were in an abusive situation. So how did you navigate uh, with Connecticut Legal Services to get the help you needed? And what exactly did they, they do for you? Well, Susan B. Anthony played a big part in that. They referred me, and then Connecticut Legal Services contacted me. I worked with an attorney there who was absolutely amazing. Um, she kept me grounded throughout the whole thing. She gave me the legal advice I needed, and also, in some ways, the emotional support, because there's a lot of emotion that goes into detaching from something like this. So um, basically, she, she she was very professional, and she kept me grounded, and it was just amazing. It was an amazing experience. Uh, we heard from one of our uh, guests, Timothy Fisher, earlier about um, a very tragic story uh, when a young woman was trying to get a restraining order, but she didn't have the money for an attorney, wasn't able to communicate that fully uh, um, in court, and that restraining order wasn't granted. Is that something that you feel like that could have been your situation had you not had this help? Um, I would rather not discuss the restraining order issues. Um, it involved law enforcement. So, uh, I 
most likely could have filed for a restraining order, but that wasn't an option for me. Mm. And we'll go back to Timothy Fisher, who brought that that story up uh, from Middletown. Um, that when people are were very, feeling very vulnerable, they've got a lot of different things happening in their lives. That representation really matters. It's not the idea of a, an attorney uh, being a luxury; it's a necessity for some. Yeah, it's crucial to have somebody on your side when you're up against somebody who's more powerful. Whether it's a threat of violence by a domestic partner, or whether it's by the state or a large institution. To, you feel so vulnerable, and you have great difficulty defending yourself and explaining your position if you don't have an advocate for you there. We also heard from from Barbara uh, Timothy that she'd never heard of Connecticut Legal Services until um, she needed the help. Could more be done to educate people in our state about these programs? Yeah, so uh, there's a legal aid network, Connecticut Legal Services, New Haven Legal Assistance, Greater Hartford Legal Aid. They're between them, they cover the entire state. Uh, then there, there is a hotline, a central hotline through statewide legal services, and we try and get the word out as best we can. And social service and agencies like Susan B. Anthony, of course, know about them as a place to refer key people to, as happened in Barbara's case, fortunately. And Barbara, it sounds like you had a good situation with the Connecticut Legal Services. Um, what would you say to residents who might just be learning about these programs um, listening right now? Well, I've recommended them a few times to a few people who've been in my situation so far, and I think they're absolutely wonderful. Um, everybody that I've met and talked to, especially my attorney, I think she was even more professional and dedicated more time than some of the paid attorneys that I know. Um, I had been a realtor, and I worked with um, plenty of attorneys, and I think that she really put her best effort forward to, see, to um, support me. Well, we're glad that uh, you had a good good uh, outcome, Barbara. Thank you for sharing a little bit of your story with us. You're welcome. I wanted to go to another caller. Uh, Giovanna is calling from Hartford. Uh, Giovanna, you're on the show. Oh, Giovanna, can you hear me? Oh, well, um, looks like we're having a little phone trouble. So I'll go back to uh, John Pollock, again, coordinator of the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel. Uh, John, we just heard from a woman who was able to get um, help through uh, a legal aid or legal services organization. Tell us about um, how these programs are around the country and how are they funded? Absolutely. And I, I wanted to add, too, that it's important for people to know, for your listeners to know, that every state in the country, including Connecticut, does provide a right to counsel in, in some kinds of civil cases. For instance, in Connecticut, for people who are going to lose their children to the state, potentially, who are committed to a, a mental hospital for, for various reasons, these are just a couple of examples. There are many more. They would be entitled to, a count, to counsel in those cases, and which areas varies from state to state. Where legal services is so critical is where the right to counsel does not attach, and those gaps, which are quite significant, in fact, in this country, about 80% of the legal needs of the poor go unmet, and, and legal aid is doing its best to basically fill the gaps for, for, for that justice gap. And, and legal aid, the legal aid organizations exist in every state in the country. They receive their funding in part from the Federal Legal Services Corporation. They receive it in part from state uh, and local governments, from private foundations, and a variety of other sources. All right. Well, I want to take a, another call now. Uh, Giovanna from Hartford, are you there with us? Hi. Can you hear me? This I, is Giovanna from Greater Hartford Legal Aid. Oh, okay. Giovanna, thank you for giving us a call back. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you said you're with Greater Hartford Legal Aid, and, and tell about the clients that you have. 
Great. Um, I'm the Litigation and Advocacy Director here at Greater Hartford Legal Aid, which serves indigent families in Hartford County. It's one of the organizations that Dean Fisher mentioned earlier. We provide free legal help to very poor families. That's below about 125% of the federal poverty level, which for a family of four is about a little more than $30,000. We have, for direct representation, very focused intake priorities because we can't meet the overwhelming demand to fill that gap. So we help folks in family matters with domestic violence issues, like Barbara was talking about, in housing matters when families are in danger of losing a rental subsidy, um, in educational matters for kids with disabilities and special education needs, in public benefits, and certain limited employment discrimination unemployment cases. So we really have to focus our intake priorities. We also try to use our very limited resources to have a greater impact for our clients by doing class action work when appropriate. Um, we've had class action cases about food stamps, relocation assistance, um, services for incarcerated parents recently. Um, and we also provide legal information to the public on a website that the Legal Services Network maintains called CT Law Help that provides self-representation information. But we can't meet the overwhelming demand. We really have to focus our very limited resources. And candidly, um, we, you know, we need pro bono attorneys. We need more attorneys. But also the work requires um, training and experience because many of our very poor clients have mental health issues, trauma histories, and deal with all of the effects of poverty. So it's difficult work. Well, Giovanna, thank you for giving us a glimpse into what Greater Hartford Legal Aid uh, does and uh, the strain on resources. I wanted to go back to our in-studio guest, Timothy Fisher, and John Pollock can also weigh in on this about uh, the demand and, and how that demand has been increasing uh, over the years and what kind? what are you seeing? Uh, certainly. We've done legal needs studies here in Connecticut that have told us that uh, on the order of 3% of the people who need representation uh, in, in the, of the poverty, poverty population are actually able to get it. And the reason for that is just the reduction in funding over the decades uh, for Greater Hartford Legal Aid, Giovanna's organizations, and its partners around the state. There's a desperate need to increase that funding, but in a time of uh, challenged resources, it's hard to do politically. Uh, what is the acronym, the IOLTA, that pays for legal services? Tell us how that system works. Sure. Um, every lawyer has an account they're required to ethically that holds the funds that belong to their clients as opposed to the lawyer's own uh, earnings. And that account is, for example, when a client places a deposit that's going to be owed to the, to the court or something like that. Well, those funds sit in a bank account, and they're commingled with a lot of other funds, so you can't separate out who's earning what portion of the interest. And so by state law, the interest earned on that account goes to support legal aid. And John Pollock, again, from coordinator of the National Coalition for Civil Right to Counsel. Uh, talk about the funding streams and any proposals on the table within the federal government that could jeopardize that. Right. So the Trump administration has proposed... Uh, zeroing out the budget of the Legal Services Corporation. That's really almost impossible to overstate the, the devastation that that would wreak upon this country. Legal services organizations are the backbone of, of this country. We need them, and they rely heavily on the Legal Services Corporation funding. They've done a lot of work to try to diversify where they get their funding from, but there's no question 
that that funding is essential to them being able to continue the work, the important, very important work that they do. I, I can say that there are many of us who believe that Congress has a much better understanding of the Legal Services Corporation and its importance than the Trump administration, and we believe there's broad bipartisan support for the Legal Services Corporation, but it may still face cuts, and it, it certainly will not face an increase in funding, which is really needed to keep up with the increasing justice gap. This is where we live today. We're looking into the issue of a civil uh, right to counsel. Uh, in criminal matters, uh, individuals are guaranteed a representation. That doesn't always happen in civil matters, especially when someone can't afford an attorney. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. We're going to learn about an incubator program in just a couple of minutes. I did want to take a, another phone call. Uh, Sue is calling from Suffield. Sue, you're on the show. Hello. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, I just want to mention that um, a few, quite a few years ago, in fact, we had a person that had threatened our lives, had done uh, extreme damage to one of our homes. We went down to uh, the courthouse um, in Hartford and filled out the paperwork, um, did not have an attorney, did not um, hire an attorney and explained our situation, wanted a restraining order against this person, we were denied. There was another woman in the courthouse. There was an attorney with her, and she was trying to get it. I don't know what her situation was, but she was extremely upset, crying. The uh, attorney was pressing her for money. She said, I cannot afford this. Um, in my opinion, it seems a shame that you have to hire an attorney to get a restraining order against a person. In my opinion, again, there should be a mediator to be able to hear your case, your story, and it should not be so difficult to get a restraining order. When you feel your life is in danger, um, it, it should be a much easier process. Um, attorneys I have dealt with throughout my lifetime, I feel they've been dishonest, um, and I, I have not had uh, very good luck at all with attorneys. I, I just don't trust them. Well, Sue, I'd like to have our guests weigh in, but we thank you for your question and your comment. Um, um, Sue obviously didn't have a good interaction with attorneys, uh, Timothy Fisher, a dean of the Yukon School of Law. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about her question of why attorneys are necessary? Certainly. Well, of course, the Moreno case gives an example of that, that the law establishes what the requirements are to get a restraining order. And to get the facts together to explain that uh, can be easy or can be difficult, depending on the case. As Giovanni indicated earlier, um, and, and also um, Barbara, the the quality of the lawyers provided by Legal Aid in Connecticut is magnificent. They're very well trained. They're incredibly dedicated. They're working for way less than they would get in the private sector. Uh, and so, yeah, there are lawyers that will do this work and will do it admirably. And we've got to make sure to find ways to make them available to people. Uh, some may wonder why it's so expensive to find to hire attorneys. How would you answer that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there are, there are just a host of reasons. Um, a, a large part of it is that the uh, so much of the legal community in the United States works for companies, for businesses that have that pay. 
tax-deductible dollars, and so there's a tax savings on what they pay for lawyers, and that's just enabled lawyers to drive the price up. And so we need a different community of lawyers that are available for just average people. And indeed, that's one of our many goals at the law school and with our incubator program. So let's talk about that. Timothy Fisher, again, dean of the Yukon School of Law. We know about the traditional legal aid. Um, it helps people up to a certain poverty level. But then there's people who may make too much to qualify. That happens a lot. How can the incubator program first tell us what it is and how can it help uh, this this group of people? Sure. So it's aimed at this portion of America that that doesn't qualify for legal aid or can't get legal aid, but can't afford regular lawyers. And so we're targeting that particular population up to 300% of federal poverty, which is about 72,000 for a family of four. And so what we've done is at the law school, we have space set aside and a director. And we have, as are starting this spring, five lawyers that are organizing themselves as solo practitioners representing this kind of community. And so we cover their overhead. It's minimal cost for them to operate. And as a result, they're able to bill very reasonable rates uh, to be attractive to folks who couldn't afford regular retail cost. This was launched in March. Um, How many people have you served so far? We've served uh, a couple of dozen. um, And we are just getting started, as I said. We've got five lawyers. Um, We've had cases that have been tremendously successful, especially in helping people avoid losing their homes from an eviction or foreclosure. And uh, I wanted to give John Pollock a way in on this, this incubator idea. I believe the one at UConn Law is one of two in in Connecticut. Um, John, how are we seeing these pop up around the country? Well, I want to say, first of all, that it's so important that we address the needs, the legal needs of those, all those in this country, not those who are just indigent. And, And the incubator programs are one innovation that is being proposed to address the legal needs of Americans in general. There are others, such as improving technology, making more downloadable forms, um, simplifying the court process, and we support all of these things, although I would, I would say that, again, when we come back to people who are indigent and we're talking about these really critical cases, like the kind that your caller raised about domestic violence, these are cases where we believe that the stakes are so high and the people are so vulnerable that really need to be entitled to a right to counsel. It should not be left to the market, uh, to the vagaries of the market, or, or the availability of legal services, which, as we've discussed, is, does not receive enough funding currently, that in those situations people should be entitled to counsel. And what, one of the reasons why that entitlement is so important is because where, there's an, where there is an entitlement, funding goes along with it. It's not subject to Congress or state government deciding that they feel like funding something, but rather it's an obligation that they're required to fund. I want to take another call. Gail's calling from Litchfield. Gail, you're on the show. Hi. um, My name is Gail Carr, and I'm an attorney, a family attorney for 25 years now. And I just, Connecticut has a pro bono attorney network, and I can't underestimate the need and the uh, assistance that's provided by that network. John Bosey of Connecticut Legal Services does a terrific job of reaching out to private counsel uh, to assist in cases where people can't afford uh, attorneys. And it's a wide variety of cases that they help with. Um, I know that there's counsel from prestigious firms down in Fairfield who help with 9-11. There are attorneys who've helped with immigration issues following the uh, Trump administration. I help on family cases for people who can't uh, afford family counsel and need assistance. And there are attorneys 
in every jurisdiction who volunteer their services, uh, who are regular paid attorneys in private practice, but who see as part of their civic obligation uh, the obligation to perform pro bono service. All right, Gail, thank you for your comment. Um, something I wanted to go back to Timothy Fisher again, dean of the UConn School of Law, and you mentioned that um, oftentimes it's hard for new attorneys to find work despite the demand. Can we talk more about that problem, how you've seen that grow since the recession? Sure. Well, um, so many lawyers back in the uh, up to 10 years ago had an opportunity to join firms, medium, small, large firms, because there were many jobs still growing. And, and that turned around with the recession. It's beginning to, it's climbed back substantially, but not entirely. Um, but what we see is that there's just such a real opportunity with this population that can't afford, you know, full cost lawyers <clears throat> in the larger firms. And so that's what we're aiming towards. I want to take uh, one more call. Catherine's <clears throat> calling from Hartford. Catherine, you're on the show. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. Go ahead. Thanks. Uh, this is Catherine Bailey. I work with the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund, and we were very honored to serve on the task force that Dean Fisher mentioned uh, last fall. And I agree, we definitely need to be creative to solve this problem. Um, we very much applaud programs like the Incubator uh, at UConn and the Family Justice Center as well. Um, as Giovanna said earlier, the, the demand is simply overwhelming. And um, in order to, you know, reach more people who may be above the indigency line, um, you know, but still cannot afford traditional legal representation, uh, the Connecticut Women's Education and Legal Fund provides legal education through uh, a hotline, through bilingual community advocacy, through pro se assistance to those who have to navigate the system on their own. Um, as well as free consultations with attorneys. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, being creative and employing a variety of strategies is really the only way we're going to solve, uh, to solve this problem. And, you know, one thing I wanted to ask the panelists is that, uh, you know, there are a couple things preventing people from accessing legal services, and one of them is simply an acknowledgement that they have a legal problem. A lot of people don't even recognize their issues as legal issues. Um, and I wanted to ask how they think we can do better at that. Catherine, thank you for your call. Timothy. Sure. Well, one thing we're doing at the incubator, it's called the Connecticut Community Law Center, is that we're reaching out to social service agencies to say when you have clients come in, you can spot that sometimes what they're presenting to you as a health issue or a housing issue or a family issue uh, also has a legal problem behind it. And you may be treating the symptom at the social level, but there's an underlying legal cause that we can help with, uh, and the two as a team can work well. And so we're getting a referral network of those cases to us where we can work hand-in-hand -hand with them. Well, I want to give John Pollock the last word again. Uh, he is with the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel. Uh, John, did you want to uh, piggyback from Timothy on this uh, question about how you can get people to even acknowledge that they have an issue that needs a, a representation? Well, and that is a really pernicious problem, and it, and it shows exactly why people need lawyers. And in a way, you almost need a lawyer to get one because you may not understand that the problem that you're facing is a legal question. And I want to really give credit there to legal services organizations that are so good at parsing the stories that people tell and actually identifying, in some cases, a legal problem that the person may not have realized they have. It may not have been the reason that they came to legal services in the first place, but in telling their story, 
legal services is able to tease out all of the different legal issues that that person might have. And it's important to understand that legal issues are often not separate and distinct. A problem that a person has with housing can feed into an employment problem. It can feed into a custody problem. It can feed into a domestic violence problem. We have to understand that all of these civil problems are interconnected, and that's the way we need to treat them. Uh, yeah, John, you raise a, an excellent point. I was thinking about the work the nonprofit Connecticut Veterans Legal Service has done. Uh, they're based at the West Haven uh, Community uh, Health Center in, in Connecticut, and they may see a veteran who needs help with uh, uh, finding uh, discharge paperwork, and then they realize uh, he's dealing with some housing discrimination or there's other issues that um, really snowball. Uh, Timothy, I'll go back to you in terms of uh, when, when veterans need help. Uh, sometimes their issues are very specific, and they need people that understand uh, uh, the system that they were in before uh, they were discharged. Can you talk about that? Certainly, yeah. As, as John says, it's very often a constellation of issues where one triggers another. But in the case of veterans, of course, they have a uh, similar experience that affects their needs and background, but they also have a special set of rights. And so it's really important for them to have access to lawyers who know about the rights that veterans have, both with regard to claims and with regard to uh, discharge status. I bring that up because it is one of your legislative recommendations from your task force. There's a long list of legislators paying attention. <laughs> yeah, it it sure is a long list. And I just want to add one other point. And I think it was Susan who called from Suffield, made a really good point about why do things have to be so complicated? Why do we always need a lawyer? And in fact, that's one of our recommendations in the task force is that we should look at why it is that certain institutions, certain government bureaucracies, certain industrial bureaucracies where people have a right to insurance or health or something, why it has to be so hard? Can these things be simplified? Well, I want to thank Timothy Fisher, Dean of the Yukon School of Law. They started an incubator program. Uh, we want to thank you for letting us know about the program and coming in today, Timothy. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Also, John Paul, a coordinator for the National Coalition for a Civil Right to Counsel. John, thank you for your time. You're welcome. Coming up, we're going to shift to commuting. Are you an extreme commuter? We'll explain after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, many of us take it for granted. Much of our food comes from seeds. Did you know 94% of our seed varieties have disappeared in the last century? On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with the co-director of the documentary Seed, The Untold Story. That's Thursday. We're shifting to transportation now and commuting. Not just any type of commuting, but extreme commuting. What on earth are we talking about? Joining us now to explain is Ryan Miller, a longtime reporter for The New York Times. His latest piece is on extreme commuting. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, good morning. When we use that phrase, tell us what you're talking about. Well, I sort of, you know, the Census Bureau defines long commuting of 60 miles or more. But for purposes of the story, I thought two hours minimum each way would be pretty extreme. <laughs> that is extreme. So, so tell us about the people that you uncovered that are taking on these commutes. What's the demographic? Yeah, it was interesting because we're, you know, we're in the middle of this inexorable march of technology and how it, and, you know, doing the story at first, I thought, well, I'm going to do a funny story about people who, you know, ride on trains for three hours. But it really turns out to to be a microcosm of what's happening in the workplace today. Um, and I think these four people who um, sort of exemplify that. There's a woman named Jennifer 
Jennifer who uh, Layman, who worked, she lived in Manhattan in a tiny, tiny, tiny apartment, but she got to work at home. And so she, you know, she did that until she got to the point where she was sort of talking to herself, uh, being in 300 square feet. So she moved up to Newburgh, New York, because she had had this deal. And a year after that, she got a new job and was not allowed to telecommute. So I think this exemplifies how um, companies in this country today are, are sort of being dragged into this home, uh, working at home phenomenon. So, in fact, up up in uh, in uh, in your town. Uh, Aetna pulled back on that, too. They were allowing it. That's true. Uh, and now they're stricter about that. And it, then there's a fellow named Joe Nevins. This guy's heroic. He lives, um, he was working part-time at home in Chester, Connecticut, which is about 30 miles east of Hartford. And then he, his job changed, and he had to be at the office every day. So, and then there's this fellow who lives way out. This guy lives almost by Waterbury. And he he makes, he chooses to commute like that and, and rationalizing it partly because of technology. Technology allows him in his two and a half hour, actually, you know, he has a three, three and a half hour commute. Um, now, technology allows you to be working uh, while you're on transportation, you know, buses or or, uh, you know, or trains or whatever. And the other fellow was a chef who um, moved to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and he did it basically for his family. He wanted them to have space, and he's willing to put up with two and a half hours. Brian, for we lots have of different reasons. Brian, oh, uh, we had a caller uh, that was on the line that wanted to talk about um, extreme commuting. Here he is, uh, Gavin. Gavin's been holding from Hampton Bays, New York. Gavin, you wanted to okay. to uh, talk a little bit about extreme commuting and some of the factors behind it. Yes. Um, hi. I would like to. Uh, well, to me, you know, I heard this topic, and it's very interesting to me. Uh, it has a lot to do with suburbia. And um, and economics in my mind, um, I, I think the New York Times um, writer is correct in a way. I do think it's uh, you know there's a technological component, uh, but there's a phrase called uh, or referred to as uh, drive to qualify, and you know people can't afford a, a lot of times to live near where they work. Um, so I, I think that's that's really a big issue there, and um, not to mention it's just resource inefficient. The fact that you have to drive two to three hours to put a work there and back uh, and you're just burning up fuel and a lot of times sitting in traffic, uh, you know, it's just, it's just inefficient and uh, economically it's just, you know, it really doesn't make sense uh, when you kind of look at the externalities there. And Gavin, can I ask how long of a commute you have? <laughs> I'm very, very lucky. I, um, my first job, I lived down the street. I could walk there. Um, and that kind of continued with me for my whole life. I, I, I don't understand how people do it. God bless them. I, uh, I'm i not capable of it. Um, <laughs> I can't commute any more than 20 minutes. My, mine's 20 to 30 if traffic is uh, not too bad. Well, that sounds pretty sweet. Yeah. Thank you, Gavin, uh, for your comment. Brian, could you uh, talk a little bit about what Gavin brought up, this idea of, of housing costs really drive people uh, to live further and further away from their jobs? Yes, you know, that's part of it because... Uh, most of the people I spoke with, they looked in the suburbs, and the suburbs were just you know, not reasonable for them. 
And then, they, as I said, that you drive to your qualify. You keep going out and out and out. Um, the the one, one thing that I think is holding back this trend in this country is infrastructure. You know, it's the... You know, the, the trains, I mean, I don't know how people can work on the train. They're derailing every day. But, you know, we have these, this sort of third world uh, transportation system, and um, it's just difficult for some people to do it, so then they have to drive. But, yes, the, the suburbs, once again, but this is changing the demographics. We're heading toward, you know, sort of young people who want to live in the city living in the city. Um, and then well-off people who want to be close to the city living there, and then everybody else increasingly trying to get out on the fringes where it's you know not as not as pricey. Now, uh, Brian Miller, again, a longtime reporter for the New York Times, wrote this recent piece on extreme commuting. This idea that uh, some are driving to or commuting two hours or more uh, to get to work. Uh, do you find that uh, there are there are people that I think you said that one of the people you profiled actually enjoys his commute because he gets a lot done. But if you're on the Metro North and there's an issue of Wi-Fi, uh, that can be a challenge. Yeah, I find that's astounding. That, you know, we're at that time when 11 out of 10 people have cell phones and Metro North doesn't have Wi-Fi. I mean, there are buses in Pennsylvania that have Wi-Fi. Um, but yes, that. Um, that presents a real problem. But some of the, actually all of the people I spoke to, they said no one complained. They just had come to some uh, <laughs> some agreement or, or you know, with the families and all and, and just take this as part of their life. I mean, even three hours each way, um, none of them was griping about it. So... As I said, it's a lot of it's about the human capacity for to you know, sacrifice and rationalize your lifestyle. Now, Brian, uh, in your interviews, did you find that um, uh, companies are receptive to this idea of maybe allowing more telecommuting? So if someone lives uh, pretty far away from their job, that they're able to, to come in maybe three days a week and then work from home? You know, it depends on the company. I said, like, at the is not too keen on it. The financial industry in New York is not too keen on it. In fact, New York City is the least uh, amenable to uh, telecommuting, you know, as opposed to Chicago, San Francisco, even Dallas. Uh, why? I don't know. But traditionally, that's the way it is. But they are moving in that direction. There's, this is, you know, is going to continue. Um, and it just makes sense with the technology today. I'm just wondering what what they're going to do with all those uh, those fancy corner offices with a view of the Hudson when they're empty. Because obviously, all these people are going to be working away from home. Um, you know, we won't need a huge office. And I want to fit in. Building. I want to fit in one more call, Brian. Erica's calling from Middletown. Erica, we just have a couple of minutes. Go ahead. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yes. Go ahead. We just have a couple of minutes, Erica. So I don't fit the definition of being an extreme commuter, but my husband's office and mine are 110 miles apart from each other. So we have two kids and collectively we commute five hours a day. Um, And for us, it was a case of, you know, trying to solve our two body problem because we're both working professionals. We're both dedicated to our careers. And 
You know, we both wanted to be able to see our kids every night. And so we had to find a solution somewhere in between so that we could make it work. But there's a lot of community. Where do you, where do you live? We live in Fairfield. My husband works in Manhattan, and I work in Middletown. I just got to work. Oh, okay. Now, Erica, you said that you made the decision so you could see your kids, but do you see each other? Uh, late and early <laughs> and on the weekend. Well, thank you, uh, Erica, uh, for your call. Um, again, we're talking with Brian Miller, a longtime reporter for The New York Times, who just wrote a piece on extreme commuting, uh, this idea that some people are commuting two or more hours just to get to your job. Brian, can I ask you, what's your commute like? Well, my commute's about, uh, let's see, about four yards. <laughs> Riders, <laughs> we're shut in. We just stay home. You don't have to go. I go to the post office once in a while. Uh, well, thank you for uh, letting us know a little bit about extreme community. I just want to tell our listeners, we know transportation policy is very important uh, for many of you. We've been trying to get uh, the Connecticut Transportation Commissioner, Jim Redeker, in studio. Uh, we have not gotten a yes yet, but if this is someone that you want to hear from to ask uh, questions about uh, the new rail line coming through uh, from New Haven to Springfield, among other questions, uh, maybe you should give them an email. Uh, from, for the, we want to thank our producers, Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson uh, for producing uh, this week. Also, thanks to our guest, Brian Miller, longtime reporter for The New York Times. Brian, thanks for your time. Okay, thank you. And you can learn more about the show at wmpr.org slash where we live. We hope to bring you a conversation with Connecticut's Transportation Commissioner uh, in the next few weeks. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.